This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to The Feed. Hard to believe that the Russian invasion of Ukraine began a year ago this past Friday. And what a year for the people of Ukraine. Bullets flying, bombs exploding, necessities of life stripped away, bloodshed, battle fatigue, and death. Thousands upon thousands of Ukrainians have lost their lives trying to protect their homeland. Just this past week, tough talk from U.S. President Biden in a surprise visit to the war-torn region and a nearly two-hour-long speech by Russian President Putin, a speech riddled with threats against Ukraine, the United States, NATO, and beyond. We begin our coverage of the war in Ukraine with a Canadian press reporter on the ground. Here's Glenn Perkins. Laura Osman, let's start at the beginning. Where are you? So right now I'm sitting in the Lviv train station, which is kind of an amazing place to visit when you think about the very beginning of the conflict when literally millions of Ukrainians were fleeing their homes and occupied territories as kind of Russian tanks were moving into these communities and um, missiles were essentially raining down on the country. Um, They all unloaded here. And so at the beginning of the war, right outside of the train station, I'm told there was like a big, almost tent city of refugees, services for refugees, food tents. and, uh, And so it's pretty incredible to visit this place now a year later it's full of so much history from the last year and you can still see very clear signs of the conflict and the war that the, uh, the role rather that this place plays in the war and what are you seeing there so outside the train station there's uh there's still a tent set up this is where refuge or where volunteers rather actually sleep uh when they're not handing out sort of hot coffee and tea and and snacks to people there's still a food tent outside um there's uh, an area of the train station that uh, Ukrainian officials call an, an invincibility fortress. Um, this is somewhere where people can come when there are power outages in the cities uh, because missile strikes have targeted critical infrastructure like um, power stations. Um, so for a lot of the winter, people didn't have uh, heat or electricity and they would come here to kind of recharge their phones using generators. There's a place for kids to play. Um, and so you really get a sense of the, the role this building plays in the community. What is the mood like there? We're one year into this invasion. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I keep hearing from every Ukrainian person I speak to is, is about resiliency and this sense of of kind of not allowing them to defeat them, not allowing themselves to be defeated personally, uh, which is quite inspiring. But I think there's also a lot of trepidation as the anniversary of the invasion approaches, you know. Um, some folks are feeling a little bit nervous about a potential um, sort of renewed offensive from Russia, um, the impact on normal communities, even here in Lviv, which is a relatively safe part of the country. It's very, very far from the front lines. Um, It's like if you think about, you know, if the front line was in Nova Scotia and and you were in kind of Manitoba, right? It's it's very far away. Um, But you feel the impacts of it, particularly when there are air raid sirens going off on a regular basis. Um, And so I do get the sense that people are a little bit nervous about what this week is going to bring. What are people hearing? Do they get the news that President uh, Biden was in uh, Ukraine just this week? Are they hearing that kind of information? Oh my goodness, yes. People were buzzing about Biden's visit uh, to Ukraine. It was a huge deal here. I can't understate it. Um, You know, I was out in a really remote community uh, outside Lviv. I was talking to um, people who have farms and 
dairy farmers and and that was all they were talking about right and the promise of that visit and and what it means and whether it means more resources that will go toward the war effort and in people are extremely invested in their country in the fate of their country in the fate of the military here um it's all anyone's talking about and it's something that we can't accept or understand not fortunately not being in that position i don't know how people can go on every day when it's it's a war that's going on in their country it's pretty amazing the way that life has gone on here in lviv and now the disclaimer is that lviv's a relatively safe place you know the city center hasn't been hit by missiles um Typically, it's critical infrastructure that's been hit, and they've adapted really remarkably fast. You know, you see generators outside of every restaurant, and there's new restaurants opening, and they're fabulous and modern. And, you know, the city is starting to talk about the idea of tourism again. Um, It was funny, actually. I've been here a few days. There's been a few sort of air raid sirens going off, and I scurried down to the shelter in my hotel, and I was the only one there. (laughs) You know, I think that people have kind of come to this realization that they can't live their lives in the basement, that they need to continue on, and, and that's what they're doing. And it's showing their support for their president, isn't it, In with regards to what's happening? Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, patriotism here. I think it's, um, you know, quite natural. Um, a lot of support for the work that the president has been doing, but also the work of the military and the sacrifice of the soldiers that have been fighting on the front lines and also the people who are fighting at home in their own way, either by raising money or, you know, donations to charity, taking care of refugees or just keeping the economy going. Really, everything is kind of viewed through the lens of the war effort. These are things that we don't think about, that life is returning. I'm not going to say normal, but people are living their life again. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't know what I was expecting when I came to Ukraine, to be honest with you, but um, I was very pleasantly surprised by this really vibrant, uh, modern city, beautiful architecture. And as you're walking around, you feel like you're in any other European city, but then suddenly you'll see this really jarring reminder of of the war. Like you'll see um, sandbags kind of stacked on top of each other as a barricade, or you'll see anti-tank material in front of monuments, which are all wrapped up to preserve them in case there's a nearby explosion and prevent them from being damaged. So you can sometimes forget uh, where you are and, and the kind of conflict that's raging elsewhere in the country. And then you get these really kind of stark reminders that I think people are starting to look past as they kind of get back to regular life. You started this trip with meeting with uh, refugees in Poland. Tell me about mm-hmm. that. What What are the stories that you heard? Well, I'm really um, interested in the program that Canada created to bring Ukrainian refugees in. It was a really unique, one-of-a-kind program that's not been tried before, where rather than creating a traditional refugee program, what they did was they um, created work permits that would allow people to come for three years, kind of almost no questions asked. Once you got your approval, you could come, you could work, you could study in Canada. um, And figure out what your next steps are and people were admitted to Canada really quickly um, so in that respect the program has been a huge success um, but it's the people whose prog- whose applications are kind of still waiting and so I spoke to this woman who was approved to come to Canada really quickly but her six-year-old son is still waiting and in the meantime that sort of the the her own visa the time is kind of ticking down right and so already it's been six months so now her visa is only good for two and a half years and it's causing 
questions about whether once her son is approved, whether they can actually come here, whether it's a good idea, it's creating a lot of anxiety. And so there's still a lot of people in the queue. There's still a lot of people who don't know what they're going to do next. And at the same time, supports in Warsaw are starting to disappear, right? We don't see the same level of supports for refugees because we're a year on now, but there's still people in pretty desperate situations who don't know what their next step is. And that's uh, a lot of anxiety for people. And is that a feeling that uh, the refugees are getting now that we are one year into this war, that maybe they're not the number one priority for other countries? I don't know if it's that they're not the number one priority, but rather that, you know, the idea is that life has to go on for them, right? And so they need to find jobs and apartments and um, f- figure out where they might settle, uh, in at least in the short term, um, if they're not going to return to Ukraine. A lot of people have returned to Ukraine. Um, they're moving to regions like Lviv that are relatively safe um, because it's closer to home. They don't want to get too far away because they want to stay close to home in case of victory and, and get back to their lives and communities. Um, so Canada is a very far away destination for those people. Um, at the same time, though, they're kind of in limbo. And they, if if this program that Canada has put forward is going to expire um, in March, as it's set to, then people are going to have to make a decision very soon about where they want to go. And that is, um, you know, terrifying for some people. During your discussions, your meetings with the refugees there in Poland, what's been surprising for you? What have you heard that has surprised you? I mean, I don't know if it was surprising, but the thing that really struck me was... Um, that every single person who has left Ukraine has an, an incredible kind of breathtaking story about the night of the invasion, the months that passed, how they've been surviving in the meantime, and the sort of remaining devotion to their country um, in the, that they still have. You know, um, people I've spoken to have left under incredible circumstances. They waited hours or even days in lines to cross the border. They piled into trains by the thousands to get, you know, to somewhere safer. Um, And then when they got there, these aren't people who are planning to immigrate, right? They just kind of arrived and and didn't know what to do next. And now they're making lives for themselves. They're finding jobs. They're finding purpose. Um, It's incredible. What's the feeling one year in? I think that... um, For the people that I've spoken to anyways, it's really just a time for reflection about how long they've been dealing with this new normal. Um, There's still a lot of talk about what it will take to achieve uh, victory for Ukraine, um, what a Russian defeat would look like. And these are really complicated questions, right? Regardless of the outcome of this war, Ukraine's going to have a massive border with a very hostile neighbor at the end of the day. Um, And so what it's going to take to actually achieve a lasting peace and allow um, life to truly return to normal here is still an open question. Um, But, you know, again, I was at the Lviv tourism office today and they're making really concrete plans about what they want to do when they feel like they've achieved a a safe victory for Ukraine and how they want to reopen the city and, and welcome people back. So there's still a lot of optimism. Laura Osmond with the Canadian Press. Stay safe and thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Throughout this past year of devastating conflict in war-torn Ukraine, Peter Sturen has worked tirelessly alongside his fellow defenders of truth and freedom at the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. Peter joins us now with the year that was and hope for Ukraine's future. Welcome to the feed and thank you for being with us, Peter. 
Thank you for having me. So what a week it was and what a year it's been. Uh, I know that it is for most of us watching around the world, it is the first year anniversary of the invasion by Russians of Ukraine. But in essence, and in fact, it really has been nine years. It has. Uh, Russia moved on the eastern part of Ukraine, Donbass, way back in 2014. They uh, uh, took by force all of Crimea, uh, where there was two million people living, and it's been under Russian control ever since. So for us, it's been a very long nine years, but of course, the last year has been incredibly brutal as they started bombing city centers and and just totally... uh, throwing all kinds of devastation on Ukraine and its citizens. There is a school of thought that Vladimir Putin would have figured that Ukraine would have fallen to its knees by now, but that's not the case. How is it that Ukraine and Ukrainians, everybody standing firm and together, how is it that they're able to hold hold their position? Well, uh, I said from the very beginning, I actually said this in one of my first interviews back uh, last year on February 24th, was that uh, there was no way that Russia could take a country of 40 million people that won't, don't want anything to do with uh, Russia, really. Uh, certainly there were some sympathizers and people that thought, well, maybe, you know, we're, we're Russians aren't, aren't necessarily our enemy. But that's all changed. As soon as they invaded and started killing civilians, uh, everyone stood up and said, this is wrong and we don't want this. So what's looked like the 200,000 soldiers that Ukraine had at the time, basically now they probably have a fighting force of close to a million and 40 million people helping them and resisting. We've seen that in, the, in these lands that have been liberated, like Kherson, which was under Russian control for several months. Um, the Ukrainians ran out into the streets to greet the uh, Ukrainian troops as soon as they uh, took back control of the city. Uh, and it was obvious that uh, Russia just is not gaining any ground um, in, in this brutal war. Peter, in your opinion, is the world giving enough support to Ukraine? No, frankly, um, I mean, we're very thankful. We're thankful for all the countries, uh, especially here in Canada, for, for the, uh, what they have given and the financial support, of course, military support. But most of the stuff that has been given is basically all equipment that it was in surplus. Uh, and as we know, even uh, Canada is sending four leopard tanks. Uh, they have many more. Some of them are not even in service. But, you know, when we look back to what was given to Russia to fight Nazi Germany, it pales in comparison. The U.S. actually at that time gave 4,000 tanks to Russia. Uh, they gave thousands of planes back uh, in in the early 1940s so that they could fight Nazi Germany. So, yes, Ukraine is getting a lot of aid, but we believe they can certainly get more to end this quickly and not have this drag out. And what would you like to see being given to Ukraine? Well, clearly, uh, number one thing they're asking for now is jets, fighter planes. Ukraine started the war with very few um, Ukraine was one of the only countries in the world that gave up its nuclear weapons. So they didn't only give up their, their, their nuclear warheads, they also gave up all their long-range missiles. In fact, some of those long-range missiles now Russia is sending back and destroying Ukrainian cities. They, they, they found the serial numbers of a few of them. So JATS is one thing to basically defend the skies. You can see how often they are lobbing, frankly, yesterday. 
another bomb, a rocket, hit in a city center at a bus shelter. It killed six people, including a teenage girl, and injured over 30 people. This is what Russia is doing, and Ukraine doesn't have the air power to be able to defend against a lot of these missiles, and that's really what they need. Uh, they'll do it themselves, but they can certainly use those fighter jets that, are again, are sitting in a lot of warehouses in, in Western countries. And talk to me about the support from NATO. Are you feeling that it is enough, and what could NATO be doing other than trying to get more members into its fold? Well, NATO, NATO is uh, obviously, um, uh, you know, has been supportive. But again, uh, you know, it took them a very long time to react, and it took a lot of countries. If it wasn't for some of the uh, East European countries, but particularly, I think, of Poland, um, it, there would have been many more lives lost because uh, Ukraine just didn't have the, the firepower to match what the Russians have. They have the manpower, but they don't have the firepower necessarily. So, again, I think NATO could do so much more the thousands of lives lost, you know, we, no one wants that to continue. And we know that Russia will do its utmost to do as much damage as possible because now uh, it looks like they, they're in a position where it's a point of no return. They have to get something out of it, which means destroying the country. Interesting. Uh, it, some people say that Obviously, Putin isn't playing fair. For instance, he announced on February 21st that he and Russia are suspending its participation in the Strategic Offensive Arms Treaty. Putin, in his almost two-hour-long speech, also blames this war in Ukraine on the West. How do you make sense of that? Well, Russia's always done this. It's disinformation. You know, uh, any dictatorship you can look at, North Korea, uh, even in China, they use they use information in reverse. So it's disinformation uh, the, because the truth that we all can see um, doesn't play well at home. So in order to convince their own people to go and, as the latest figures show, over 150,000 dead Russian sh- soldiers, um, and that's a very conservative estimate, not counting the hundreds of thousands that are already injured. Um, how do you sell that at home? Well, you sell that to your own people by saying we are under attack. And, and, they, and if you actually watch some Russian reports, they actually tell them that there's Polish, NATO troops, American troops in the U.S. that are planning to attack Russia. So that's their strategy. They lie and they've always lied. And this thing about nuclear weapons, well, it's just another threat. Well, if we don't, you know, if, if the West doesn't stop supporting Ukraine, well, we might just use nukes. It's ridiculous. It's, it, they won't because they're not suicidal. But it's a strategy of disinformation to continue. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a quote once said by Churchill, eventually, when you, say, when you say enough lies, eventually something starts to stick. And that's exactly their strategy. Lie, lie, lie. And eventually someone says, well, it can't all be lies. Well, it is. Peter, could this escalate and become World War III? Frankly, I don't think any serious uh, army general or uh, even a, a lot of political leaders really believe that. Uh, it, you know, it's been going on for a year. 150,000 dead Russian troops, tens of thousands of Ukrainians have been killed, and um, it hasn't escalated. It hasn't even gone beyond the borders, really. It's, it's all in Ukraine. So how this escalates into World War III, I don't see it. Russia can't even 
can't even take Ukraine. They've taken 20% of it, yes, but only 20% of it. How can Russia fight a world war? It's a paper tiger. It's obvious. Their equipment is second rate. Their soldiers are, are not trained properly. They're not motivated at all to fight in a foreign country. And here you go. It, it, it's, not, it's not working. So there's no way in, my, in, in any calculation that I could see this escalating beyond the Ukrainian borders. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris recently said Russian forces have committed crimes against humanity in Ukraine. Justice must be served. That's just one more really huge problem, but it hits at home. When you talk about crimes of, uh, against humanity, that's got to hit home, and particularly for the people of Ukraine. It is absolutely brutal. It's beyond anything that we could have even imagined. We've always known that Russia, under the old Soviet Union and the old Tsarist Russia, were brutal uh, dictatorships, and, and they, they really did terrible things against their own people. Uh, but here, um, there's over 61,000 documented cases of war crimes. Just think about that number. Mm. That's how much the government has documented, and they will put, be put, pushing, putting this forward. They have videos. This is the most video, uh, videotaped uh, war in history. Everybody has a cell phone, so it's all recorded. But the, 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 the cases of brutality, the raping of children, not just women, but children, um, the killing of innocent civilians documented. We have videos of it in Bucha. They did exactly that when they were retreating, when the Ukrainians were beating them on the outskirts of Kyiv. Uh, in Kherson, they found, they found torture chambers. I mean, in there they had teenage boys they tortured because they believed some of these boys were helping the resistance. Uh, again, it's documented. A 14-year-old boy that was tortured. And the, but this goes on and on. It doesn't, doesn't happen in just one area. It happened in all areas under Russian control. So war crimes beyond the pale, this is why they need to be stopped. And the world needs to stop them because the only message they would get from a win is that they can do this to another country. They could do this to someone else and as they've shown with what they're doing in Ukraine. Peter, what are you and your fellow defenders of truth and freedom at the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress doing to help Ukrainian-Canadians understand what's happening in Ukraine, but more importantly, helping those living through this in Ukraine? Well, we, as today, we spend time talking to people in the media. We organize uh, mass demonstrations, such as we had on Friday night in downtown Toronto, where thousands of people came out to show their support for Ukraine. We meet with politicians on a very, very regular basis, and we talk to them and explain to them the issues um, and what we have as, as evidence to show um, how actually brutal this, this war is and uh, the amount of crimes that are being committed. So we continue to do that. We continue to provide information to as many people as possible. And we will do this until Ukraine is, be, is able to declare itself free from Russian aggression and terror. And when do you think that might happen in your, in your wildest imagination, in your very accurate imagination? When do you think that could happen? Well, we were all hope and prayed it would happen sooner. I think a lot of us, including myself, thought it would happen sooner. But... I think everything is in place that that it will come. There will be a major uh, counteroffensive that Ukraine will do most likely this spring when the uh, when the 
when the earth is drier and not as muddy, uh, they'll be able to make advances, and particularly when some of the heavy equipment that uh, the West, particularly the U.S., has been uh, has been shipping over. So that includes a lot of Western tanks, armored personnel carriers. Once all that equipment is on the ground and ready to go, Ukraine will fight back like Russia has never seen before, and it will end the war hopefully by sometime uh, late summer and fall of this year. That's what we're all hoping and praying for. But uh, Ukraine knows what they have to do. The forces know what they have to do. It's just a matter of getting all the right equipment on the ground to get it done. Peter Stern, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, thank you so much for your words, your thoughts, your your vision about what could be for Ukraine and the people who are defending it with their lives. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Anne, for having me. From the start of the war, Canadians have been ready to help. Tina Cortez with that story. Meet Lucy Biotti from Stouffville. In May of last year, she welcomed a family fleeing Ukraine. Thank you for joining us again, Lucy. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Take us back to those early days. How did it come about that this family joined your home? Uh, So the war broke out and um, I was trying to figure out something to do. So I knew that some ways were just to donate money to various agencies helping, but I felt that I wanted to do a little more. So I connected um, through Facebook uh, to some uh, families in the Ukraine who were looking for places to live Um, and through Facebook I met a woman who actually lives here in Richmond Hill uh, who had her old neighbors from the Ukraine who were looking for somewhere to live so um, I connected with her and uh, I I said I would love to host the family and, and welcome them here and so we went through and we were waiting for the visa process for the family because they had to um, get their visa so that they could travel here to Canada um, and they had to go through that um, waiting period for the three-year work visa that the government is offering to Ukrainians fleeing the war. Uh, and when they um, finally uh, got that visa, I know we waited anxiously for uh, about three months for them to get their visa. Uh, And then they arrived to join us in May of 2022. What was their situation like in Ukraine before they left? Um, Their situation was that uh, the town that they lived in was uh, under attack. Um, The husband of one of the women who lived with me uh, was a soldier. So he is still fighting uh, on the front lines. And so their situation was one of um, flee so that they could sort of, I guess, save their lives. And tell us a little bit about this family. Who are they? And, um, you know, what what are they like? Uh, it, a, a lovely family. Um, it is a 62-year-old grandmother, uh, her 32-year-old daughter, and um, the little girl who just, she turned one in September, so... She was here for her first birthday, um, and they uh, arrived with basically, I think, two luggages, or one. I don't even know if they had two luggages, um, and they have been living with us ever since. 
What's been the biggest adjustment for you and for them over these past 10 months? Um, I think one of the biggest adjustments is realizing um, just sort of some cultural differences, realizing that um, we're in it for the long haul. Uh, The war doesn't seem to be ending, and I don't think it's safe for the family to go back at this point. Um, Also, there's financial difficulty uh, for the family, meaning um, if I didn't welcome and host them, I don't think or I know they would not be able to afford uh, to live anywhere on their own. Do they still communicate with the family members they left behind? Yeah, so they are still communicating uh, with their family that they left behind. I know that the uh, 62-year-old woman, like her son and his wife and his child, are still in the Ukraine, um, and they still have other family in the Ukraine. The husband of one of the women who lives with me is obviously a soldier, so still fighting in the Ukraine. So they do communicate uh, some days. There is no communication, depending on what is happening sort of in the country, in the region where they are. So we have some ups and downs with regards to being able to to locate family and not locate them. So that's sort of the, the ride, the roller coaster that we've been on for the past few months. And what do you think is the future for this family? Do they plan to make a, a life for themselves in Canada? Uh, I know that the family hopes to make a life for themselves here in Canada, I don't think they want to return to the Ukraine. Um, I know that the uh, husband would like to join his family here uh, if and when he can and when the war, I guess, is over. Um, So I know that that is their hope. Um, I hope that they are able to do that. Um, But we shall wait and see because I know the um, process for applying for uh, I guess your permanent resident status here, uh, it, it's not um, that clear cut for Ukrainians. Lucy, what's your advice to anyone planning to host a family? What do they need to know in terms of the level of commitment? I committed to a long term and I know that taking in a family with no males, um, that I was in it for a long haul because uh with uh, the, I brought 15 families here to the Stouffville area. Um, the only ones who were able to successfully move out into their own place uh, and are able to sort of survive on their own uh, are ones who were here with a, a male in the family, um, meaning they were able to find better work, higher paying work, and then they're able to afford uh, rent and living on their own. So. Unfortunately, where we live is not the cheapest place to be. So I think um, people have to be cognizant of that and recognizing that you may have to help them for longer um, than you think. Uh, some, some people were willing to host or take people in for very short periods of time, basically like a, a hotel, sort of get yourself acclimatized, figure out where you are, try and rent and look for something that you can then move into on their own. But um, it takes a lot of patience. Uh, It takes a lot of kindness. 
and you just have to be willing and ready to um, to help when they need it because they do need uh, quite a bit of help and assistance when they first get here just with setting up their OHIP and uh, getting a social insurance number. Some arrive without passports, so then you have to deal with going to the embassy and and trying to get these documents, applying for their um, their QIT, um supplement that they could receive upon arrival. Trying to apply for that is also difficult. Um, there's issues with the visas that are being issued by the government, so there's a lot of help and support. Uh, finding them a doctor if they can, uh, trying to set that up. That's um, also difficult because there's not a lot, a lot of doctors accepting patients. So there's a lot of help and support, but in the end, it's a rewarding experience uh, because your family grows with the adding of the um, Ukrainians who come here. What a lovely sentiment during a very difficult time. Thank you, Lucy, for the help you provide and your commitment, and thank you for joining us once again on the feed. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Please donate to help Canadian charities provide urgent aid to those impacted by this war. Go to CanadaHelps.org. We'll be right back. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Your health matters on the feed. Cases of norovirus are on the rise again here in the GTA after a few quiet years during the pandemic. Public health officials are noting that this stomach virus is making an unwanted comeback, is highly transmissible, doesn't discriminate, and you don't need a large exposure to norovirus to be infected. And the symptoms, they are nasty. But you know what? I'm going to ask a top infectious diseases specialist from Oak Valley Health to take it from here. Hi, Dr. Anthony Ladelfa. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the symptoms of norovirus, and they are not pleasant. That's right. So the most common are gastrointestinal side effects. Most commonly, it's vomiting, uh, as well as uh, diarrhea. You could have abdominal pain or bloating. Occasionally, some people uh, can have fevers with it, uh, body aches, headaches, uh, then other sort of more flu-like symptoms can accompany it as well, but it's predominantly the vomiting initially and then commonly diarrhea with it. And who is most susceptible? So the most susceptible are the extremes of age, so uh, young children, babies, uh, infants, as well as the elderly. Those with uh, compromised immune systems are also at higher risk of more severe disease. And then from the dehydration perspective, if there's significant nausea, vomiting, and lack of oral intake, um, all of those same uh, individuals, as well as individuals who are pregnant, are also at additional higher risk of complications. And Dr. Ladelfa, what is the typical route of transmission for norovirus? So typically, unlike previous respiratory viruses we've been so accustomed to, this is predominantly transmitted through what we call the fecal-oral route. So predominantly, individuals come in contact with either the secretions from with diarrhea, vomitus directly, or if it's on surfaces that then get contacted, and then it goes from their hands to most commonly their face 
and it will enter their own GI tract from that uh, from that route. And how long does it take once there's been exposure for the symptoms to start to show themselves? It can be as short as 12 hours. The most common incubation period is 24 to 48 hours. In the books, it says as long as 72 hours, but the vast majority are in that 12 to 48 hour mark from the first time of exposure. So why, Dr. Ladelpha, is it making itself known now? We're, you know, edging our way out of the pandemic. Is it because we've changed our habits? Part of it is the amount of human-to-human interaction now compared to previous years. There's always a predisposition of this virus for the late fall to winter months anyway. So this is in keeping with its usual seasonality in terms of when we see the most frequent outbreaks. Likely previously in the past few years, there's been just less uh, interactions, less uh, dense settings of, or interactions with individuals to have less of that spread. We did still have the occasional outbreaks in daycare settings, long-term care facilities, places where we would expect it. One other piece, though, is that perhaps with the pandemic, there has been a bit more attention to hand hygiene as well, which is one of the best ways to limit the spread. And so that could have been keeping things at bay. Now, as the pandemic measures are lifting, there could be less attention to things like hand hygiene, as well as the more... um, dense interactions with higher numbers of people in more confined spaces that's now leading to more favorable spread. So how do you prevent the transmission of norovirus? How do you prevent contracting it? It's a tricky one because Mm -hmm. a lot of it boils down to early identification of an individual's symptoms with prompt exclusion because again that individual has to be in that space for long enough to have their diarrhea, their vomitus, or anything that they've touched, then interact with others. It boils down to the same principles for any contact-acquired infection. It's frequent hygiene, disinfection of shared surfaces, and particular attention in those higher congregating settings of strict attention to cleaning and disinfecting, good food handling techniques, um, and then Again, avoidance of those larger areas, especially if we know that there's been an outbreak there recently um, or if we know it's in those winter months and there's a higher congregation of younger children, which tend to be notoriously the the (laughs) higher spreaders, um, are the main things. Otherwise, it is unfortunately challenging to avoid, especially if you've come even into a little bit of contact because, again, it is very highly contagious. Is it another reason to think about wearing a mask? It's a good question. Some people do subconsciously touch their face more than they realize. And, you know, working in infection control, we do witness people touching their face and their noses more than they would actually realize. Wearing a mask might reduce that amount of touching of the mouth, which reduces the number of times that your hands, which may have contacted infected surfaces, would come into direct contact um, with your mouth and your nose. Um, But ultimately, there's very, very little, if any, of the classic kind of respiratory or airborne transmission of this virus. So it won't strictly reduce direct contact, but it would be that indirect transmission that wearing a mask might reduce the amount of transmission opportunities. And the final step in our norovirus journey, how do you treat it and how long could it last? Mm -hmm. 
So with these viruses, like many viruses, there's no dedicated antiviral treatment. It's what we call supportive management, which means aggressive hydration as much as it's able to be tolerated. Um, again, avoidance of further transmission. Many people require uh, aggressive oral hydration with electrolytes. Um, and other people, if they have severe dehydration, they may require intravenous fluids, either in an emergency department um, or another setting. Uh, but it's primarily making sure that what we're losing through the vomit, through diarrhea, and through what we're not able to take in gets replaced with appropriate hydration and fluids. And we keep an eye for those symptoms primarily of, of dehydration is the main complication we worry about. Well, great having an appointment with you, Dr. Anthony Ladelfa, Infectious Diseases Specialist, Oak Valley Health. Thank you for your advice and your information and your time. Thank you for having me. And still with your health, a Toronto Somali entrepreneur and co-founder of Quick Health Doctors is using telemedicine to try and improve access to health care in East Africa. Shaliza Bacchus has the details. We are extremely fortunate to have the type of access to health care that we have here in Canada, and that's often taken for granted. Healthcare is nowhere near as accessible in other parts of the world, especially in East Africa. Quick Health Doctors is a tool that can connect users with doctors all over the world. Joining me now from Nairobi, Kenya, is co-founder of Quick Health Doctors, Somali-Canadian entrepreneur Hussein Hashi Abdullah. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. First off, can you tell us about where the inspiration to start Quick Health Doctors came from? Well, Quick Health Doctors is an affordable cloud-based uh, telemedicine uh, application, which uh, enables doctors and patients to make, uh, connect and have an online consultation. In terms of inspiration, it came from way back in 2001 when my father fell ill. Uh, all of a sudden, he's been a very healthy guy, but all of a sudden he fell ill and all his vital signs, blood pressure, temperature, kidney function, uh, heart rate, everything went just crazy. And then we took him, uh, the family took him to the to the doctors and they, uh, you know, did a battery of tests and, you know, gave him a bag full of medication, but that even made him worse. And on top of that, he had this horrible headaches and, and, and he lost his, all of a sudden, lost his uh, sight. Then he also lost, became delusional, he didn't know where he was. And there was some people saying that maybe this was the, the beginning of dementia or something. Then uh, I went to my family, I was in Canada at that time, I went to my family doctor and I just, you know, described the situation of my father. And he said, it is anything but Alzheimer's. It's something else. So the doctors did the, um, the MRI, and I, they found this huge tumor in his head. And and they said, oh, we have to operate. Uh, after a few hours after the operation, my, my father didn't make it. He died. I mean, it's normal. I mean, it's, it's the human beings. We die, and like everything else. But the thing which really bothers us was the fact that we found out that he actually didn't need the operation at all. He had a, a cyst in his head, which was fluid-filled. And all they had to do was, for, uh, you know, relieve the, the fluid. But they didn't do that. They operated on him and they cut parts of his brain out with the removing of the, the tumor. So we felt that our responsibility as to ourselves and our loved ones is that we have to get the best possible medical attention. I mean, what happens after that, whether they make it or not, that's up to God. So it's from then I spoke to my, my sibling, who is my, my, my sister, and she's my co-founder. We, we discussed and we felt that we have to find a better way. 
we have to create where geography was not of importance, that a person should be able to connect with uh, competent doctors anywhere in the world so they can get a chance to get a second opinion or maybe get a, a better diagnosis. That really is incredible. Thank you so much for creating something like this. And I hope that with time, more people are able to take advantage of it. Now, if our listeners want some more information, where can they go? On my our website, quickhealthdoctors.com. That is one word, quickhealthdoctors.com. Hussein Hashi Abdullah, co-founder of Quick Health Doctors. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Coming up, recognizing our public heroes. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next couple of stories turn the spotlight on the heroes in our communities. Kevin Frankish with the nominees. IDI, or Intercultural Dialogue, is a national organization based here in Vaughan. They work year-round trying to bridge gaps between people of different cultures or faiths. One project they take on every year is the search for public heroes, and that's where they need your help. Dave Ralph is with IDI, joins me right now to tell us more. Hi, Dave. Good afternoon, Kevin. First of all, let's uh, let's get a description for folks out there of, of what exactly IDI is. Well, IDI, you said it very, very well. They they want to bridge that gap in different cultures. Um, uh, they hold all sorts of uh, events uh, throughout the year, and I'm uh, uh, I'm very proud to help them coordinate their Public Heroes Awards. Tell me about the Public Heroes Awards. Well. Here in the Greater Toronto Area, where we we search for uh, first responders and public safety personnel, uh, that um, our three award criteria are altruism, dedication, and community involvement. And this is community involvement above and beyond the assigned duties that they might undertake in the police, fire, or ambulance services. Um, uh, Because of their work in the community, they see needs and they might be volunteering for different organizations, uh, youth groups and and things like that. And that's the type of uh, first responder and public safety person uh, or personnel we want to acknowledge in our Public Heroes event. You talk about the first responders and you also mention public safety as well. So it's not just police, fire and EMS. No, that's true. We're very pleased to have uh, 17. We have 17 Public Heroes Awards that are available for uh, uh, our 17. Well, we'll call them partners. Our 17 uh, agencies are the police, fire, and ambulance personnel from uh, Durham Region, Peel Region, York Region, and Toronto. That makes up 12. And we're excited to have five other partners, uh, the uh, Ontario Provincial Police uh, here, the RCMP that serve here in Ontario and O Division, what that they call the uh, Corrections Ontario staff that keep us safe um, uh, here in Southern Ontario. Uh, they're, they're members there. Uh, um, HMCS York, the Naval Reserve Unit in downtown Toronto, they're, they're a partner. And the Orange Air Ambulance staff uh, are a partner. So and, that makes up another five. And this um, is where, and I said on the outset, that you need uh, 
the public's help right now? How so? Well, I, uh, it's been our experience. I mean, the Public Heroes Award has been going on now for 13 years, a couple of years off there with COVID, unfortunately, but uh, we're excited to be uh, resurrecting it this coming May. Um, a lot of uh, public safety personnel uh, live in communities that they don't normally work in. So it's the next door neighbor that might know that uh, paramedic Smith or, or, or firefighter Jones um, example would be became the president of the community baseball association and under their leadership they've increased the youth playing baseball from 300 to 600 over a period of four or five years that's the type of person uh, uh, we want to acknowledge uh, they've recognized the need in the community uh, and uh, they're out serving in the community and it's the it's the neighbors it's the next door neighbors it's the uh, associations that uh, are around i'm sure i'm sure i haven't found them yet but i'm sure there's a platoon of firefighters somewhere in the gta that on a tuesday morning after shift instead of after working 24 hours instead of going home they're going off to perhaps a children's breakfast club and cooking breakfast for, for, for kids in the community, right? Mm-hmm. We're looking for individuals and we're looking for teams of uh, organizations that are helping in our community. All right. People better act fast, though. You have a deadline coming up. Yes, our deadline is uh, March the 10th. Our web portal to uh, make a nomination is uh, publicheroes.org. Public Heroes, Heroes is H-E-R-O-E-S dot org. And click on GTA and you'll see nomination form there. Tickets are open. Now we're going to be having a dinner honoring these uh, Public Heroes uh, coming up on May the 3rd in Vaughan. I understand that uh, this morning we put up a link uh, for ticket sales. If you'd like to come and and meet some of these fantastic uh, people that we have. And, and, And might I add one more thing. This is not just open to the sworn officers or the uniform officers. This is open to anybody that's in those organizations that uh, we want to acknowledge. All right. And uh, I'm humbled that you have asked me to uh, to host this event. Oh, I didn't know whether you wanted to bring that up. But yes, <laughs> I, uh, we're very excited that uh, you'll be joining us and uh, and uh, being our master of ceremonies at the event on May the 3rd. Yeah, this will be my second and uh second time doing it and let me tell you it really is incredible to read those stories um especially these days when we hear a lot of bad news about our first responders sometimes there is far more good in our emergency services than there is any bad apples and and this helps to recognize that it also helps to recognize the fact that it, it does you know being a hero doesn't mean you're pulling someone from a burning building or a, a wrecked car, but you're doing just as a probably even more effective a job by by doing what you're doing. Well, there's there's been I've participated in in a lot of events, and and we are humanizing the people behind the uniform, right? They are just like you and I, right? And they're working for us in the middle of the night on Christmas Day, et cetera, et cetera. And there are, there are some incredible uh, people 
that are in our communities as first responders and public safety personnel that uh, that's what our award wants to acknowledge. All right. Uh, so thank you very much, Dave. Uh, once again, your deadline, though, March the 10th for nominations. March the 10th. Yep. At midnight on March the 10th, our nomination portal will unfortunately have to close. And then the uh, award ceremony happens May the 3rd. And May the 3rd at the Paradise uh, Banquets uh, Hall uh, on Jane Street in Vaughan. All right. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Kevin. Great to chat with you. All right. Dave Ralph, one of the Public Hero Awards coordinators for IDIPublicHeroes.org. And that's the website you can go to for the nomination uh, form. And also you can uh, buy yourself some tickets and come on out and join us to honor these public heroes on May the 3rd. Now Jim Lang with Students Who Give Back. Now, there is a great organization in York Region doing a lot to help students as they look ahead to their post-secondary education. It's called the Neighborhood Network Give Back Awards. And to talk more about it, I'm thrilled to be joined by their manager of community relations, Aaron Sorenzia. Aaron, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Jim. How are you? Fine, thank you. This is a fantastic uh, idea where there's $1,000 cash prize, and the awards have been offered since 08, and it helps students in the region look ahead to their next steps. How did this all come about? Well, I think we really have to give credit to Magna International. Neighborhood Network is actually Magna's community engagement and community support team. Um, and because Magna has such a strong policy of corporate social responsibility, they feel um, that it's very important to give back, support volunteerism, support community building. And of course, that ties into the Give Back Awards and supporting these amazing grade 12 students um, and celebrating all their volunteer achievements. So kudos to Magna for um, being a leader in community engagement in this way and we're so happy to be offering the Give Back Awards which is a thousand dollar cash prize as you said and really awarded to students who have gone above and beyond and really given back to their community through volunteerism throughout their high school career. Aaron and before we get too much into it it's a smart thing for Magna to do because these students these grade 12 students are tomorrow's engineers and CEOs and CFOs they're the captains of industry that potentially could be have a, a huge position at Magna down the road. Absolutely. But you know what? Even if they go on to, um, you know, do any career that is not related to Magna, we are totally supportive of that. What we want to do is celebrate and reward students who are engaged with their community, right? And we know that no matter what, professional development opportunity and career path you take, uh, giving back and community spirit is extremely important, especially in this day and age and as we come out of two and a half years of the pandemic. So we really want to, again, celebrate these amazing students and reward them and, and hopefully encourage the next generation and remind people that, you know, it's important to volunteer and give back to your community. Students in Aurora, Georgina, King Township, Newmarket, Wichert, Stobel, can be a part of it, go to nnetwork.org slash givebackawards. You know, Aaron, we, uh, my wife and I, we have kids in their late teens, early 20s, and we think about, all oh, the new generation, blah, blah, blah. I'm constantly amazed by uh, our, our own children, their friends, uh, their acquaintances, and the work they do, volunteering, giving back to the community. The, the new generation's a lot better than we give them credit for. 
I couldn't agree more. And I think especially what's been inspiring for me was looking at these past two years of the pandemic and seeing the creative and innovative ways that students found to get involved and give back, whether it was virtually, whether it was going out, you know, safely, socially distanced in their neighborhood, doing community cleanups, or even checking on elderly neighbors in need. Um, These students haven't stopped and they really recognize and value that sense of community. And again, they're our next generation, they're our future. And so inspiring to have leaders like this across your region and we look forward to celebrating them through the Get Back Award. Applications are open until 4 p.m. on Friday, March 24th. 20 students from the region will receive the $1,000 cash prize. Aaron Sorenzi is a manager of community relations of the Neighborhood Network Give Back Awards. Please, if you know a student in Aurora, Georgina, King Township, Newmarket, or Richard Stobel, uh, nominate them. Get those applications in before 4 p.m. Friday, March 24th, in network.org slash Awards. Aaron, an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I think this is a fabulous program and a continued success in the future. Oh, thanks so much, Jim, and thanks to 105.9 The Region for all your support in helping us spread the word. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.